Welcome back to Mark's Madness. Yeah, we're back. We're doing it again. Doing it again. Welcome back to Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will be guiding you through our delightful uh, tour de force through Black Reconstruction in America. But first, as always, we're going to start with David talking about current events because all the ones Nathan wants to talk about are bullshit Twitter stories, and I don't want to deal with that. Oh, no, that's <laughs> that's not a current event. You say um, that, but it, it damn it, it's annoying. Yeah. So talk about real it, current events. <laughs> it, can, it can be annoying. Um, oh man, I'm I'm off on things this week too because I've had just a busy week personally. So, give me a second to figure out what the hell's been happening in the world. There's a whole world around us. It's important. Ah, um, I got nothing at the moment. I'm drawing a blank. All right. No, that's and that's fine. You know what? We don't need a current event every single week. This is not going to be a current events week, gang. Uh, if if we if we get more current events, maybe you'll hear about them next week because we're going to try and record two this week. But we'll see how that goes. Um, that being said, we are going to start yeah. on page six hundred and sixty three of Black Reconstruction in America. We're going to start on the last paragraph, and it's going to go a little something like this. In the Reconstruction Constitution, state taxation for schools was a new feature unknown in the previous school laws of Alabama, Florida, Arkansas, Georgia, Mississippi, North Carolina, and South Carolina. The principle of direct taxation was undoubtedly the most important contribution of the Reconstruction regime to the public school movement in the South. It was perpetuated in all the revisions of these constitutions after 1876, except in Alabama. The victory of home rule in 1876 was followed by a period of hostility or at least indifference to public education. In 1879, in Virginia, $1 million belonging to the school fund had been used for other purposes. In Georgia, the legislature of 1876 destroyed $350,000 worth of bonds belonging to the school fund. I wonder if they just like tore them up and like ripped them up and said, ha, they're gone. I don't know what destroyed <laughs> means in that. Screw you. It's, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. What Maybe it it's in that, that episode of Doug. You ever you ever see the episode of Doug where he gets a bond and he thinks he's rich and he he like he he mulls it over for the whole episode and then he goes and they're like yeah sure kid we get those all the time and like they throw it into a laundry bin it was the weirdest episode of that cartoon I've ever seen. Uh, anyone who had they referenced Doug on your Marks Madness bingo card, go ahead and scratch that one <laughs> off. Uh, sure, that was an oft an, a heavily debated topic coming into the episode, but there you go. Um, the Alabama. <laughs> Tennessee in 1869 abolished the general tax for school purposes and the administrative system. The Alabama Constitution of 1875, instead of allocating one-fifth of the state revenue to education, which was the provision in the Constitution of 1868, substituted direct appropriation. I love when you have the Constitution and it's supposed to be this, like, sacred document. And you just go, meh. I don't feel like it. Yeah. That's like, <laughs> Not not this week. In Arkansas, the income from land sales belonging to the school fund was used for other purposes. There were similar reductions of school revenue in Louisiana. In Texas, a voluntary county system was substituted for the state system in 1875 and 1876. The public school system of the South was helped by the gifts of the Peabody Fund in 1867 to 1869. I feel like I know that fund. I feel like I should know more about that fund. Okay, definitely not the same thing I was thinking of because I just did a quick Google search for the Peabody Education Fund, and it was formed by George Peabody in 1867 after the American Civil War for the purpose of promising intellectual, moral, and industrial education in the most destitute portion of the southern states, except schools for newly freed African Americans. Except schools for newly freed African Americans. So there you go, Mm. gang. 
It's great. Uh, because it was restricted from founding new schools, it largely did not benefit freedmen in the South. Uh, that's great. And it was dissolved in 1930. It was the Southern Education Foundation was created in 1937 from the fund, and these funds uh, were intended to support schools for uh, for black Americans, but you, we all know that didn't happen. So, nope, just, just a bunch of garbage yeah. philanthropy nonsense, as all garbage philanthropy nonsense is. That being said, and, and another yeah. example of how um, there there's subtle, how, how a lot of racism, as much as we're talking about the South, you know, after Reconstruction now, and this is a time where, you know, there's a lot of explicit, like, no black people, you know, think, I mean, the black codes were a thing. Um, or, you know, I mean, it, obviously there was an era we, we look back in now known, known as the Jim Crow era, um, you know, shortly after this. But so much racism is is these kind of implicit policies where it's like well technically we're not just doing this for white people but there's a condition here that applies like 99 percent to white people and that's what they did with the the whole like you know existing schools right we're not funding any new schools just existing schools well who was going to existing schools uh-huh that's it, it, it. I mean, it is what it's always been. It's it's very clearly a yeah. uh, it, it's very clearly a, a system set up to keep perpetuating white supremacy and all of its fun goings on that it mm-hmm. always has. Um, none of this changed. Yeah. None of this is new. None of this is is novel. Um, but but there you go. Um, moving on, on account of all the influences mentioned, it became common throughout the South for all parties to pledge themselves to the cause of public schools. Yet by some of those strange fatalities of history, the strongest of all influences for educational progress was the very one which during and just after Reconstruction period undoubtedly checked that cause. That was the race issue. The movement to eliminate the Negro as a factor in politics involved an appeal to passion, to prejudice, and sometimes a misrepresentation of the part of the colored man in Southern progress. It is fair to say that the Negro carpetbag governments established the public school of the South. Although recent researches have shown many germs of a public school system in the South before the war, there can be no reasonable doubt that the common school instruction in the South, in the modern sense of the term, was founded by the Freedmen's Bureau and missionary societies, and that the state of public uh, uh, the state public school system was formed mainly by Negro Reconstruction governments. Dunning says. Free public education existed in only a rudimentary and sporadic form in the South before the war, but the new constitutions provided generally for complete systems on advanced northern models. Colonel Richard P. Hallowell adds, the whites had always regarded the public school system of the North with contempt. The freedmen introduced and established it, and it stands today a living testimony. From the beginning of the public school system under Reconstruction and after, the fight between local and state control supervision had been bitter. Local control meant the control of property and racial particularism. It stood for reaction and prejudice, and wherever there was retrogression, particularly in Negro schools, it can be traced to the increased power of the county and district administrators. This accounts for the difficulties, corruption, and failures in Alabama and South Carolina, particularly in most of the other southern and in most of the other southern states. For the first success of the Negro schools, the South deserved little praise. From the beginning, most of the southern states made the Negro schools just as bad as they dared to in the face of national public opinion, and every cent spent on them was taken from Negro rents and wages and came back to the property holders tenfold in increased opportunities for exploitation. Again, capitalism. 
it's doing its thing. Yeah. It said, for instance, in one state, there were to be free public schools. The blacks were to be chief beneficiaries of the new system, but the whites would pay the taxes. Whites considered such education either useless or positively dangerous to society. Of free self-sacrificing gifts for the ne- for the sake of Negro uplift and intelligence, the vast majority of Southern white people contributed almost nothing. In recent years, under the influence of educational leaders like Atticus Haygood and James Dillard, the support of Negro education in some Southern states has become more enlightened and generous. This is particularly true in North Carolina, West Virginia, and Texas. Improvement over unusually bad conditions may be noted also in Louisiana, Virginia, and Delaware. The situation in in South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi is still reactionary and deplorable, while the improvement in Arkansas, Tennessee, and Kentucky is not great. Finally, the movement that saved that, the Negro that last public- sentence oh. is terrifyingly evergreen. Yeah, no, no. I, I, that I last feel sentence like- is terrifyingly evergreen because America. Yeah, yeah. America. yeah. Finally, this, the movement that saved the Negro public school system was not enlightened Southern opinion, but rather the Northern philanthropy, which at the very beginning of the Negro education movement contributed toward the establishment of Negro colleges. The reason for them at first was to supply a growing demand for teachers, and was also a concession to Southern prejudice, which so violently disliked the white teacher in the Negro school. David, take it away. Hmm. Yeah, yeah exactly. I wonder why. And I want to be I want to be clear to what I was saying about that, that situation in Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. I really want to underscore that when people, because I, I know it's nothing new to our listeners on the show here, but... It's just it's such a, a liberal talking point that comes up so many times, right? Like, just get rid of the South, get rid of those those reactionaries, what those stupid Republican states get and stuff. And obviously, you know, with COVID flourishing, there's definitely a lot of that sentiment, right? Like our state did good. Those those idiots, you know, I mean, they're they're giving us COVID. They deserve to die or whatever. Those reactionary states, they're reactionary because of racism. And it comes down on the people that that, you know, anti-racism helps the most. Right. Um, You know, racism hits the hardest. And so if you think of those states just in the reactionaries that cause problems, you're never going to see the the underlying problem in the people that are affected. It's, you know, of course, that's a racist stance. But the real concern behind that is that the black belt is a trap. Right. It's an enormous chunk. I think it's still the majority of the the black population in the United States. And yet under these state laws and, um, you know, these these very, very racist right wing governance, public, you know, poverty is rampant. It's specifically on the black community. And then all these public services that help lift people out of poverty, like, I don't know, education um, gets stripped away. Right. With cuts. And and it's just kind of a breeding ground for the worst policies uh, to spread to the rest of the country. Yep. Amen. This led. Yeah. This led to the establishment by 1879 of 84 normal and high schools in 16 colleges with over 12,000 students. But these institutions soon saw a higher mission. In the midst of reaction and disenfranchisement of poverty and growing caste, they became the centers of a training in leadership and ideals for the whole Negro race and the only fine and natural field of contact between white and black culture. The fathers of 40 years ago anticipated the criticisms of later years as to the wisdom of colleges for the development of back of the back of a backward race. 
I'm sorry. It's just sometimes mm-hmm. hard to get around the terminology that's yep. used in the quotes in this book. Um, so they said, let it be granted that other lines of education are imperative. Colleges also certainly are needed, and we must set the standards for the education of the race now. Thorough training, large knowledge, and the best culture possible are needed to invigorate, direct, purify, and broaden life. Needed for the wise administration of citizenship, the duties of which are as sure as they come as the sun is to the shine, though today or tomorrow may be cloudy. Needed to overcome narrowness, one-sidedness, and incompleteness. Howard University and Freedmen's Hospital are survivals of the Freedmen's Bureau. Howard University was chartered in 1867, and General O.O. Howard, head of the Freedmen's Bureau, was made its first president. Succeeding as presidents were W.W. Patton, uh, J.E. Rankin, who wrote God Be With You Until We Meet Again, and John Gordon, a lineal descendant of Jonathan Edwards. On its governing board have been Douglas, Langston, and Bruce. It has the largest Negro medical center in the United States and has furnished about half of the Negro lawyers. And of course, I mean, a lot of us today understand, you know, the historical context of of Howard University among HBCUs, uh, especially with the civil rights movement and a lot of civil rights leaders that came through there. Um. Berea College was started by John G. Fee, a Kentuckian who became an abolitionist. After the war, colored students were admitted, and a brother of the president of Oberlin was at the head of the school. For 40 years, colored students attended Berea, but finally, in 1904, the institution was by law closed to Negroes. Hampton Institute was founded by General S.C. Armstrong near where the Negroes were first made contraband of war and where a colored woman founded the first colored school. Among its trustees were Mark Hopkins, Philip Brooks, and John G. Whittier. Atlanta University was founded by Edmund Ware in 1867. To have gone on as President Ware did during those early years there must have been in the heart, deathless love, and pity for men who needed what he could give them. A faith in the gospel and eternal righteousness that never wavered, and a love for God that made work easy and suffering joy. Add to this the picture of the DeForest and Tal- or, I'm sorry, the picture of DeForest at Talladega, Cravath at Fisk, and others at Biddle, Knoxville, New Orleans, and Central Tennessee. The, there were those two influential schools at the edge of the South, Lincoln and Pennsylvania, and Wilberforce in Ohio. Nearly all of these educational leaders were either nominated by Howard, head of the Freedmen's Bureau, as in the case of General S.C. Armstrong, or received from him the most thoroughgoing cooperation. There is no greater tribute to the Freedmen's Bureau than this. Let's go over that again. There's no greater tribute to the Freedmen's Bureau than historically black educational institutions. Which have survived and thrived to this day. Yes, and that shows you once again how deeply entwined liberation and education are. Yep. Propaganda has centered the attention of the world upon these northerners who took part in the political reconstruction of the South, and particularly upon those who were charged with dishonesty, while of the history of this astonishing movement to plant the New England College in the South, and to give the Southern black man a leadership based on scholarship and character. Almost nothing has been said, and yet this was the salvation of the South and the Negro. These carpetbaggers deserve to be remembered and honored. Without them, there could be no doubt that the Negro would have rushed into revolt and vengeance and played into the hands of those determined to crush him. 
as it was when reaction triumphed in 1876, there was already present a little group of trained leadership, which grew by leaps and bounds until it gripped and held the mass of Negroes at the beginning of the 20th century. Had it not been for a Negro school and college, the Negro, to all intents and purposes, would have driven, been driven back to slavery. His economic foothold in land and capital was too slight in 10 years of turmoil to affect any defense or stability. His Reconstruction leadership has come from Negroes educated in the North and white politicians, capitalists, and philanthropic teachers. The counter-revolution of 1876 drove most of these, save the teachers, away. But already through establishing public schools and private colleges and by organizing the Negro church, the Negro had acquired enough leadership and knowledge to thwart the worst designs of the new slave drivers. They avoided the mistake of trying to meet force by force. They bent to the storm of beating, lynching, and murder and kept their souls in spite of public and private insult of every description. They built an inner culture of which the world recognizes in spite the fact that it's still half strangled in an articulate. And to end the chapter, Du Bois, uh, with a poem, There is a wide, wide wonder in it all, that from degraded rest and servile toil, the fiery spirit of the seer should call, these simple children of the sun and soil. O black slave singers, gone, forgot, unfamed, you, you alone of all the long, long line, of those who've sung untaught, unknown, unnamed, have stretched out upward, seeking the divine, by James Weldon Johnson. That was a pretty concise chapter, all things considered. It it was, and it was very, I mean, it was very straightforward, right? Because it was, rather than being, I mean, I mean, this is a book of history, right? And so it being it like time-driven is important and, and set up. But do you remember at the beginning of the book, we were kind of going through themes yeah. before we started walking through time, the war and after the war. And now we're kind of back to these themes and these themed chapters really they really summarized what happened well, right? They build you ideas. Like they walk through, like this is why education was important. This is where it was important. This is how it played out. And that was an entire chapter basically on education because it was central. You know, I mean, there's, there's a little bit to the end there where I'm not sure after talking about how reconstruction kind of had to be violent to defend itself and how this is coming on the heels of the civil war and victory, uh, the whole like praising of, of nonviolence and taking the violence by Du Bois there. I'm not sure I can totally get on board with that part, no. but the overarching chapter, the 99% bulk where it's like, you know, the education is the, the, the true liberation and the educational institutions that were founded and what remains are the testament to what reconstruction has given. That's, that's the liberation that has kept us from falling back into slavery. And that is, the, the primary difference, I mean, obviously, you know, the horrors of being owned by your entire family and, and having people be bred and sold off. We've talked about that in this book, there, that difference between that and, and horribly exploitive employment. But the, the real difference to, to Du Bois, the real liberatory difference, and I, I don't think I disagree with that, is the educational institutions. And of course, we see that even those educational institutes harm nobody other than dominating and degrading a black race so that you have power over them. Um, white racist primarily attacked that white property primarily attacked that and still does to this day because that is a pathway to liberation. That is a threat to dominance over yeah. uh, the black people of the South over the freedmen in, in the case of this book. 
Yeah. And that and and again, it is the whole root of of again that everything extracted was extracted by tooth and nail that none of this was given none of this was was just negotiated nicely even this all came at the threat of military intervention for lack of a better word um and and for mm-hmm. for lack of a better analogy this was there was definitely the concept that that they were enforcing this by force and that was and, as, and you see what happened as soon as that force was taken away as soon as it was up to the people to to vote it in or do it by oh well the constitution says you have to fund this school what happened? It was immediately stripped out. It was immediately stripped down to its bare essentials yeah. and down to everything. And that is how it has always been and how it is always going to be. Um, when you're fighting with cat, when you're fighting against capitalism, well, that, when you're that's fu- a concept you've. No, go yeah, ahead. That's a concept we've been we've been battling this whole book. Right? Is I, I'm sorry. I I, I thought you were at a stopping point. I didn't mean to jump in. No, you're good. Um, but that, that's something we've been dealing with this, this whole book, right? We, we always talk about idealism versus materialism. And it's not to totally de- degrade idealism, right? Like if you have if, – if you start taking materialism and you start driving it into some sort of inevitability, like it's some sort of mechanism, like people don't make a difference, that, then you've got a problem. And uh, so materialism is, of course, you know, your material conditions um, – shape whether your thoughts matter what your thoughts can do and what your thoughts are um and and the capabilities that they have and then of course you know shape what what's around you so even if your ideas change the world the material conditions cause those so material conditions are the dominant force that's how you you analyze things is based on those but we're not mechanists it's still ideas and and people you know that's why we're politically educating each other right <laughs> that's why we don't expect this to spontaneously just magically happen because ideas make a difference and so i don't want to dismiss idealism because i think the presence of idealism allows allows people the reminder of that and allows us to explore things philosophically and, and understand things as long as we make sure we're grounding ourselves in materialism because our intent is revolution and, and the the liberation of all oppressed masses and but something we come back to is is the difference between idealism and materialism and that that law is just it right it's like aha we won it's it's in law well who gives a shit if they're not listening right and their material conditions led them to be very very racist and feel very very threatened by black people having any power and having any education and they weren't and, and had the power to to trounce that out and so they ignored it in their fucking constitution and their holy law um so yeah the, I mean, the sacred know, divine thing that they hold up and put on the platter yeah 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 they don't give a shit about it and they have the power to not give a shit about it and they're just trying to maintain that power all day that's that is that is the name of the game all right that being said we're gonna end, uh, no we're not gonna end the episode for the week huh? who are you come on now we're we wouldn't do that to you we are we're we're half an episode in and guys <laughs> gals non-binary pals everybody involved we are starting the second to last chapter of black reconstruction in america there is there mm-hmm. is back towards slavery and there is the propaganda of history and that is that is what we are going towards. So, that being said, I'm not going to enjoy this, but let's read back towards slavery. How civil war in the South began again, indeed had never ceased, and how black Prometheus, bound to the rock of ages by hate, hurt, and humiliation, has his vitals eaten out as they grow, yet lives and fights. Damn, that is a powerful intro. Um, yeah. 
It must be remembered and never forgotten that the Civil War in the South, which overthrew Reconstruction, was a determined effort to reduce black labor as nearly as possible to a condition of unlimited exploitation and build a new class of capitalists on this foundation. The wages of the Negro worker, despite the war amendments, was to be reduced to the level of bare subsistence by taxation, peonage, caste, and every method of discrimination. This program had to be carried out in open defiance of the clear letter of the law. Back to, again, exactly what we were talking about between Jim Crow mm-hmm. and the, the stripping down to the bare minimum. The, the law is as fungible as capital needs it to be. Um, that is mm-hmm. all it is there for. It's there to give a veneer of of some sort of authority and some sort of veneer of 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 rationalism to a system that is there to simply exploit at every turn. Every, uh, everything is illegal until you're rich enough for it not to be. Kind exactly, of exactly. We back to what we talked about with the Sackler family last week, where you mm-hmm. know, again, the kind of thing that a normal person would be in jail for life, they suddenly don't have to deal with. Ah. Mm-hmm. Uh, The lawlessness in the South since the Civil War has varied in its phases. First, it was that kind of disregard for the law which follows all war. Then it became a labor war, an attempt on the part of the impoverished capitalists and landholders to force laborers to work on the capitalists' own terms. From this, it changed to a war between laborers, white and black men, fighting for the same job. Afterward, the white laborer joined the white landholder and capitalist, why did I lose my place and beat the black labor into subjection through the secret (laughs) organizations and the rise of a new doctrine of race hatred. I'm reading on a different format this week and it's throwing me. You got to be careful. I was going to say there's, there's words all over that page. There are words everywhere. This is a minefield. Uh, It is always difficult to stop war and doubly difficult to stop a civil war. Inevitably, when men have long been trained to violence and murder, the habit projects itself into civil life after peace, and there is crime and disorder and social upheaval. Kind of like, maybe, maybe like, I don't know, maybe fomenting forever wars and then expecting there to just be a, tr- a peaceful transition to peace is not a great idea. Um, maybe, maybe that's a thing that we should pay attention to, and maybe that's a thing we should have yeah. learned from. But what I guess I would want to reiterate there from that point is, is that is a very astute point from Du Bois, that violence is is a thing that is hard to stop. It, it is difficult to stop a war. Putting a thing on breaks, trying to say immediately that a thing is over and that it stops and that now we're not. Oh, OK. But imagine if that thing has gone on for 20, 30 years. If, if there's if all you have known is conflict. How do you know something outside of conflict? Yeah. And again, this is not to say that that violent that oh we should we we can't be violent or we can't we can't you know need force for the revolution because because war you know oh it'll make us bad no, but it is such a natural and obvious observation. It's such some it's something that you should be able to see and be able to to extrapolate from that it is it is almost comical when we are surprised. When when there are, you know, when there is resistance to our our, you know, imperial progress as quote unquote, when there is Mm -hmm. resistance or when there is pushback to America wanting to to basically be. And it was it was funny, you know, as a as an offshoot of this, you know, Joe Biden had said something to the effect of, you know, this is the end of forever wars. You know, we need to put an end to forever war. And it's like, um, I just looked up a video and there's a bunch of U.S. troops in Africa for some reason, Joe. Um, 
Oh what? yeah, in Guinea. Oh my goodness, there, there you go. In current events, although I did, I haven't really analyzed the situation, but like, what the fuck are U.S. troops doing, <laughs> running around with like Guinea, you know, private security forces? It's not good. Not good. No, it's not. Um, and it's, it's it's a it's a it's the natural outshoot of empire. It is when yeah. when you have a military industrial complex that is so built up that it, it it literally can't survive without some form of conflict. How do you turn that off? And when so you know, Du Bois is talking here about the Civil War that you know it was hard. It is doubly difficult to stop a civil war. Well, obviously, because you have two sides fighting each other. You have two sides on the same in the same country civil wars are are naturally among the most difficult things to quell because how mm-hmm. do you suddenly go back to, when there's an invading force and you either repel and you repel them you come together you in this out. in this yeah. sense of unity in this sense of we repel the invader but when the invading force is your next door neighbor how in the hell do you repel yeah. that how in the hell do you just go back to and now we're friends again, and now we're going to coexist. I mean, it is it is a it is what should oh, seem yeah. as a truism. Um, it should seem like a like a just a logical truism, and yet we seem well, the empire seems befuddled by this at every turn. It's yeah, a let's, let's bumbling empire thing. Right. I mean, let's say you know there, there's a civil war, and 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 you know someone from a southern state, a Confederate state, who lives like. I mean, it'd be a little more modern, but like people come together in, in urban areas to work now and, and travel. So let's imagine the Civil War happened again. It was the same lines, everything. And then all of a sudden it ends and you got a coworker from the South that drives up through, you know, to work with you in an office in Indianapolis that you live 20 minutes north of and he lives 20 minutes south. It's going to be a little fucking awkward if they shot your cousin, you know, I mean, Civil exactly. Wars are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's 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 pretty tough shit. It's pretty tough shit. So that giant diversion aside, yeah. uh, <laughs> we're gonna go. We're gonna go back and reread a little bit because we we did just diverge off in the middle of a paragraph. I apologize. It is always difficult yeah. to stop war and doubly difficult to stop a civil war. Inevitably, when men have long been trained to violence and murder, the habit projects itself into civil life after peace, and there is crime and disorder and social upheaval, as we who live in the backwash of world war know all too well. But in the case of civil war, where the contending parties must be rest to face after peace, whoa, that's not what that sentence says, but in the case of civil war, where contending parties must rest face to face after peace, there it is, uh, there can be no quick and perfect peace. When to all of this, you add a servile and disadvantaged race who represents the cause of war and who afterwards are left near naked to their enemies, war may go on more secretly and more spasmatically, and yet as truly as before the peace. This was the case in the South after Lee's surrender. Emancipation mm-hmm. loosed the finer feelings of some Southerners toward Negroes. They felt the fall of, of a burden and expressed it. The nightmare was last over. They need no longer apologize to the world for a system they were powerless to change or reconstruct. It had been changed and they were glad. But emancipation left the planters poor and with no method of earning a living except by exploiting black labor on their only remaining capital, their land. This underlying economic urge was naturally far stronger than the philanthropic and motivated the mass of Southerners. Carl Schurz, oh god damn it, he's back. Materialism. Okay. God. Um, I was just saying something about materialism and and we got back to 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 wordy Carl Schurz. Wordy motherfucker Carl Schurz. 
Some planters held back their former slaves on their plantations by brute force. Armed bands of white men patrolled the country roads to drive back the Negroes wandering about. Dead bodies of murdered Negroes were found on and near the highways and byways. Gruesome reports came from the hospitals. Reports of colored men and women whose ears had been cut off. Oh my God. Whose skulls had been broken by blows. Whose bodies had been slashed by knives or, or lacerated with scourges. A number of such occasions I had occasion to examine myself. A veritable reign of terror prevailed in many parts of the South. I'm going to go ahead and say thank you, Carl, for not being any wordier there than you had to be. Yes. Yeah, because this is obviously a very grim subject. And, and it's an important one, right? It's very real. Um, I, I wish I could go back in time and add a little bit of a content warning there. Uh, maybe we'll too. find a way to edit that, but that might be tough. Yeah. Um, but uh, oh, um, let's keep reading. Many testified that the Southern people seem to have transferred their wrath at the federal government to the colored people. This disorder and utter utter lack of control was widespread. Governor Sharkey of Mississippi found an unprecedented amount of lawlessness in 1866. Mrs. Smeads, a Southern white woman, tells of incidents in Mississippi involving both whites and Negroes. I'm just going to preemptively say content warning. Um, This is probably going to be very, very bad. Um, At this time, incendiary fires were common. There was not much law in the land. We heard of the gin houses and cotton houses that were burned in all directions. One day, as Thomas came back from a business journey, the smoldering ruin of his gin house met his eyes. The building was itself valuable and necessary. All the cotton that he owned was consumed in it. He had not a dollar. He had to borrow the money and buy a postage stamp not only during his year, but during many years to come. It was the time of deepest gloom. Thomas had been wounded to the bottom of his affectionate heart by the per- perfidity, perfidy Perf- of the white man who, yeah, perfidy of the white man who had brought this house, brought this on his house. In the midst of the grinding poverty that now fell in full force on him, he heard of the reckless extravagance of this man on the money that should have been used to meet these debts. Bands of Confederate soldiers roamed in some states. There have been a number of complaints made by the Captain Glavis by citizens of Wayne, Green, and Sampson counties of numerous robberies and acts of violence by a band of late rebel soldiers who are inhabitants of Wynn County. They are said to be headed by one Frank Coley. Some eight weeks ago, several returned rebel soldiers from Pitt County went into a village of Washington and commenced shooting and beating Union men. Several assaults were made, and at least one Union man was publicly whipped in the streets, and some Negroes were wounded. One of the party was badly wounded by a person whom they attacked. On their return, they met on the public highway a Negro. The first castrated him and afterwards murdered him in cold blood. God damn. In Alabama, Mississippi, yeah, no, I, yeah. In Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana, it was said in 1866, the life of a Negro is not worth much there. I have seen one who was shot in the leg while he was riding a mule because of the ruffian thought it was more trouble to ask him to get off the mule than to shoot him. There were a very large class of such people in Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. I had expected to find Texas in a much worse condition, but I found it much safer there than in Alabama and Mississippi. Particularly in Alabama, the people had been rendered desperate. The crops for the past year have been very poor. The rust and the army worm have destroyed their cotton crops, and there is much want and suffering among the people. 
an argument frequently employed in justifying the outrages on the freedmen is that the whites were goaded into into it by the evils of Negro domination. The argument holds good in part, but only in part, for unhappily, the outrages were committed before the suffrage was conferred upon the blacks, before such a step was even favored by any considerable number of northern people. So, as always, and again, I mean, we're talking about a very tragic subject here, but as always, the bullshit is like, oh, here's here's the cause, right? Um, and And... The prescribed narrative cause that justifies the bigotry, the timelines, the evidence, it doesn't fucking match up. It never does. Uh, Clara Barton, who visited Andersonville, Georgia in 1866, tells the story of a colored wife of 18, whom her husband, a blacksmith, brought to her walking 30 or 40 miles. I took his wife into my tent and examined her back. She was a young, bright-colored woman, a little darker than he, with fair, patient face and nothing sulky in her look. I found across her back twelve lashes or gashes, partly healed and partly not, some of them cut into the bone. She must have been whipped with a lash half as large as my little finger. It may have been larger, and one of the lashes were from eight to ten inches in length. The flesh had been cut completely out of most of the way, and it had been cur- it had been a curling whip, and it had curled around her arms cut inside the arm over the back and the same on the other side. There were 12 of these long lashes, partly healed and partly not. She could not bear her clothing on her at the time, except thrown loosely over her shoulders. She had got strong enough as to be able to walk, but she was feeble and must have been unable to work before that occurred. She was in no condition to work. She had been bucked and gagged by her employer, thrown on her face and lashed on her back, so that when her husband found her, he said she was a gore of blood. The offense was that in the last months of pregnancy, she had proved unable to do the task of spinning, which had been given to her. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, brief pause. Yeah. God fucking damn it. I feel like this is probably not going to get much easier. No, it's probably not. Um, If we've learned anything from reading, if we've learned anything from the Du Bois article that we were unable to read Mm -hmm. on the air, it's that Du Bois will not sugarcoat anything for anyone. And he shouldn't. He shouldn't. Mm -hmm. I'm not expecting him to. This isn't something that is to be downplayed. Um, But God fucking damn it. Yeah. Um, I say we just we, we probably just need to get through a couple a couple more plow through plow through yeah we got to plow through all right uh, gang there will be a to everyone that's <laughs> here now the there will be a yeah. content warning on the episode we will do our best it will, to it will explicitly cite the start of the chapter two because there was so much good content and none of this stuff in the education chapter so and the problem is is that this is. This is where I have a problem is that I, I'm going to put a content warning and I'm going to make it very explicit, but this is in, this is important. Yeah. This hat, this is, we talk about the, we talk about the bullshit, um, the, the bullshit Twitter arguments and nonsense that, that goes on that we have to deal with, uh, and, and all of the, the garbage and how that's not real. But, uh, I, I, I pull this back to Vosh doing his dumbass oh, debates I about I don't, okay so 
because we've had an aside here. I, I, I don't even want to recognize that that like sweaty gerbil with the fucking ponytail exists. No one right? does. No one does. But as long as as long as we're going to recognize his little fascist interviews. OK, because he did one recently with a with a black woman and he did something he very commonly does right not only does he throw out just the accusations against assad and the accusations against china you know he does normally like the tanky like you you assadist you dungist you you or they say dengist they can't they can't pronounce uh deng xiaoping properly um or or you jihist you know you 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 stalinist you know i mean everything like you what atrocities do you excuse you stupid tanky like he's always like that and and he's always goading people into defending like either a a a um imagined genocide that people think is real based on US accusations um without any examination or any ability to push back on that or usually just a straw man made up genocide literal white genocide like the straight up talking point of fascists right yes. and as you can see in this book i mean we talked about it like the justification is well what what will black people do right when they get the vote and stuff we have to defend against this and they think this is them continuing to fight the the civil war based on the racism that would de- be determined because what will black people do to us after what we've done to them and they're trying to build schools yeah they're trying to make their own economic way what will, and these what guys will are black like, people no, do to gotta, us gotta fucking, fucking nothing they will try and raise themselves up yeah. in in the ways that that you right. have denied them and that's it and and the thing that the thing that will come out in in bad faith and, mo- and thankfully most people, I don't say thankfully because I, I wish more people were, were educated in general about the Haitian Revolution because of the the influence it had on, of course, the Civil War, World Revolutions were over. It is something we should look to as a as a great moment in history as a liberatory model and certainly you know black liberation and colonized people's liberation you know around the world right all decolonial revolutions have turned to it. It was the first real decolonial revolution. Um, you know, in the Western Hemisphere, right? Um, but when people learn about that, they don't really understand Dessaline um, killing the, the remaining white people. And, you know, because people think of slavery, they think of it as as like an economic, from an economic transaction. Like, oh yeah, black people are, black people are treated horribly, right? They're slaves, but it's it's a plantation they're they're growing things and selling it and they just mistreated these people and that's not really it's a constant genocide for the sake of production right i mean unless you think that that you know fighting back against the nazis in world war ii and the nuremberg trials were wrong and i'm sure you know there's some level where people accept that and don't realize it because the you know they'll just hear like stalin a busher killed millions and they'll be like oh yeah sure you know but at least they're they're accepting that subconsciously and they're doing it based on like these these drummed up like oh you know holodomor stuff not unlike he fought the nazis right that's usually like the the pass they give him um so you know i mean People don't think if you make it explicit, right? People don't think like fighting the Nazis is is a genocide or an ethnic cleansing or, or a wrong thing to do or something that should be feared, right? Um, and but when you look at it, when you look at slavery, people suddenly don't have that same mindset, and they should. 
It is a consistent genocide. And Haiti had been through three different revolutions. And every time they had won, they had won their independence. And then the white people on the island who were helping them build this new island flipped it and re-enslaved them, you know, twice. And so the third time, Desalene was like, no, we can't do that. We have to end this constant genocide of our people. And and he's still, you know, the, the Spanish whites across the physical island. He was doing trade with. He, he didn't fight or invade or do anything with. He did trade with the United States. He didn't have an issue with white people in general, other than probably France. But he kicked out the French white people and killed the ones that didn't leave. And people still see that as a straw man ethnic cleansing that like, you know, they still make it an ethnic cleansing. And I guarantee you, everyone that that follows Vosh had no fucking clue that happened when Vosh made this white genocide straw man argument 800 times. And finally, finally, when they heard all these times, when has that ever happened? Correctly calling out that that straw man is absolute fear mongering bullshit to the racist, to the highest order. Someone stumbled across like Haiti and was like, oh, it happened there. And it's like, first off, when you put it into context, no. It was justified the one fucking time it happened. And it I mean, if you if you realize the adjustment in life expectancy from like the average person then was, let's say, 50, I think. Um, and, and you were looking at a life expectancy of 22 because of the mistreatment. If you look at the deaths from that. Right. Any two year period of enslavement killed far fewer people than wiping out the white people on the island. That's that's, you know, comparatively not it. That's fighting back in a war. Right. So to, to look at that in the horror and not look at the slavery in greater horror is is ridiculous. But I mean, even with it, they, they didn't even know about that. And they were running on this straw man the whole fucking time. Right. And it's goading you into, well, they would defend anything for ideology. They would defend anything for ideology. And that, that makes them sound dogmatic. Right. Exactly. But it's bullshit there. No one is being dogmatic. People are like, no, we've got to liberate people. We're materialists. And I'm sorry, we, we're not condoning violence because we're dogmatic and we think violence is the cool shit. We're not idealists, right? Yeah. It's it's the Lenin quote. We would have taken the, the power peacefully if we could have. It was it was the you know, it was the Romanovs that, that forced us into using force. Right. I, I can't remember the exact quote, but Lenin said something to that degree. Like every drop of blood was 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 blood we were forced to spill we would have been happy to take power peacefully but that's sadly not how the world works right it's something around that and and that's how it always always is so no you're not willing to justify things in the name of ideology but that straw man that makes you sound dogmatic and idealist and and like okay with genocide and ethnic cleansing to justify the ongoing genocide and ethnic cleansing that exist in colonialism that are necess- necessary for colonialism to continue is the most absurd, hypocritical straw man I've ever fucking heard. And the only time, the only time you could drum up a comparison, there's been so many revolutions since then, right? So many revolutions, South Africa, Angola, uh, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, uh, Ghana, and whether they're whether China, you know, I mean, whether they're fought violently hard fought as they usually need to be, um, or they were, they were, you know, elected and then took power. There's never been this, 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 you know, killing of all the white people or all the colonizers there. Cause the only time that had to happen was in Haiti. And that was so long ago. 
And when you look at all of the, you know, like from freeing slavery and the United States and the slave revolts and all the good things that came from that Haitian revolution, and not to take this like totally utilitarianly where we just dismiss, you no. know, horrible things. Again, that's what the straw man's trying to do. But, but you take either the utilitarian stance or you just look at why they were doing that. They were stopping a genocide and they felt that they had to because they had been fucked over twice when they had already won. You're looking at, at best, one actually justified action that's mischaracterized when you just look at it as a slaughter of white people in one revolution so long ago when all of the revolutions that had inspired since then have not done that and saying, well, what if this happens? And usually it's not even that. Usually you're digging for that after the fact to uphold your straw man and you find out and you go, aha, and it's just a gotcha. You don't fucking care about it. You were making a straw man whole cloth. You were happy to make the race a straw man whole cloth. And since you found this little gotcha, you're like jackpot, you know, and and no, I cannot I cannot take that fucking fascist little fucking furry, stanky ponytailed motherfucker. He he doesn't he doesn't matter. OK, he's no. he's a trust fund baby who who streams and snootily degrades every existing revolution and he does it just just with this this pandering and this this it, he's the embodiment of that like oh so so you know you you astonished you tanky you're you're okay with Tiananmen Square you're okay with the Uyghur genocide and Ch- like he's just that embodied that, that's all he does and says and people think he's fucking left wing and intellectual and it's garbage it's fucking garbage yes and that is what I really wanted to get before we we ended this week was David's rant on Vosh. I'm glad we got it. <laughs> but he doesn't. I mean, he does matter. He does matter, right? We we wouldn't do this podcast if it didn't matter. And he sees more people. And I wouldn't care to rant like that if it didn't matter. The shit does matter. But it it doesn't matter as much as going out to the streets and talking to the affected communities and the colonized people and, and the poor, you know, the homeless people and fighting for people's, you know, housing rights as, as, as tenants and, and fighting for people's needs as houseless people and fighting, you know, for people against cops and ice. And it, like that matters more is what I want to say. Right. And, yes. and we do this podcast to help you do that. <laughs> and then Ideally, of course, yes. like we said, edge, yeah. And then, of course, we said education is the true liberation, and that includes political education. So we do this podcast so you can better politically educate yourself and then in those actions do the real the real organizing work, the real party formation, what's, what differentiates it from from charities and organize people and politically educate them. That's what matters the most. And so political misinformation matters a lot. Right. But. It's kind of like where I was saying the idea, like anyone who goes left now, if they don't examine it, they're going to feel like Bernie brought them left because they probably went through a phase where they supported Bernie on their way there. That's unavoidable. So there's, I don't know how many people that just like, oh, Bernie brought me left. He, he's, he's, you know, he may not be perfect, but he, he made socialism acceptable. And they never think about that he was around for years and that he got popular like after Occupy Wall Street and the WTO protests in 99 and the years of the anti-war stuff and 
like he's more of a byproduct of people already radicalizing that kind of entraps you from going further left. And there's all these like entraps and nets to pull you back as you radicalize, right? That's the whole like, you know, anti-Stalin propaganda and then the super and Mao's the butcher. I mean, that's all to make you like not open up to communism and be like, oh, I don't want to be like that. That's super bad genocide, you know, ideology. That's why there's the the anti-tanky stuff and the OU aside, because it's all to pull you back from from going left. And Vosh is is just one more layer of that to, to pull you back. And so he's got a slightly different characteristic and a slightly different audience and slightly different platform than than, you know, uh, like CNN. But th- that's what he is. He's just like he's just fucking vice junior. OK, so fuck him. That being said, this has been the Mark's Madness podcast. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, David, for finally. We uh, got off subject there. We got a little bit off topic there, but uh, we didn't do any current events up top. Can you tell I feel things? I I feel things. I had feelings. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. It it is what we're here for. Again, we're, we're... we're here to talk. I think We're here that to... substitutes disclaimer this week. You got to give me a break for the disclaimer. I am not absolutely not going to give you a break from disclaimer. We're going to get to that in a God minute. So, so brace your fucking self. That being said, this has been the Mark's Madness Pod Discord. You can reach out to us in a number of different ways. Uh, one of which is email. You can email us at marksmadnesspod at gmail.com. Another way you can get us is at Twitter. We're at Mark's Madness Pod on Twitter. Uh, the last way you can get a hold of us is Nathan's personal favorite and David's personal nemesis, which is Discord. <laughs> you can get there. The, the link is in our Twitter bio, or you can email us for the link if at any time you would like it. That being said, uh, Twitter is a, or Discord is a, a fun, exciting place where. Nathan hangs out and celebrates Flat Fuck Friday with everybody and plays Final Fantasy XIV and just generally vibes. Uh, and David is summoned via the bat signal uh, whenever someone really needs an argument defended. And then David will post a wall of text to defend that argument because he is a goddamn saint. Uh, that, that all being said, uh, Discord's awesome. I would highly recommend it. It's a community of like-minded uh, comrades that that just want the best for the world, and it, it is a nice place to be able to go and and feel like you're part of a community and part of a group of people that that think like you, which can sometimes be hard if you're. Let's be real. The only communist you know, which is very real in a lot of places. Um, I I know that feeling distinctly. Um, that being said, David, I apologize, but we're doing it every week. It's time for the disclaimer, buddy. Okay. (laughs) So Nathan and I obviously started this podcast because we were reading Capital and any book of theory, uh, a book of history, you know, you want to have a discussion. You want to, you want to, you know, talk about what you learned in there. It helps you retain it and it helps you understand the work. And it's just a better better way to educate yourself right i mean we're not schools we're not gonna go out in the real world and grade ourselves we're gonna talk to other people and make sure we understand the text and so you know hopefully our our hope ever since we did start recording that capital was hey maybe we could share this reading group and make it more than two people it's a pretty small reading group and lo and behold that happened 
And what we've wanted from the beginning is that hopefully whatever group you're out there organizing with, whatever party you're in, has a reading group, political education group that's reading these works. And we could be another voice in that group. Uh, We could be another person, you know, kind of talking in the circle and giving our input, giving more context, giving another perspective so that you get the most out of it and it really does what it does. Um, Say for that, let's say, you know, you guys are reading shorter works in that group or works that more uh, directly apply to the work you're focusing on at a given time in your group and you're that you're organizing around at the moment um hopefully we can be that reading group for you and and hopefully we can give you greater context give you that input make you stop and think about the reading more so you can take in your own input more and tie it back to your life and and help you understand it and and deeply soak in that political education and Let's save for that. Let's say you're not reading along with us, um, but you're listening to this and we're either doing a word for word like enhanced ebook like this book or we're doing a summary like the aforementioned capital or state and revolution or, or anything like that. Whatever we can do to make these works more accessible to you uh, because we want these works out there guiding your action. When these works are animated into action, that's called praxis. And when you're doing that, you're forwarding the revolution. That's the purpose of all of this theory. Um, Um, And so without theory, there is no such thing as praxis. And without the praxis, the theory is completely useless. They go hand in hand. They are tied at the hip. Hey, fucking men, as always. That being said, this has been Mark's Madness Pod. We read books. My name is Nathan. My name's David. And we will talk to you all next week. Bye.